The scripture this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 through 32. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Keep your Bibles out to Ephesians chapter 5. It's where we're going to be this morning. Over the last few weeks, um, Whitney, my wife and I, we um, found ourselves watching something that perhaps you have watched over the last few weeks that comes around once every four Actually, this time came around once every five years, and that is the Olympics. We love watching them. I love turning on to the Olympics and watching them happen because the whole world is dialed in and they're tuned in to what is going on um, for those few couple of short weeks. And one of my favorite things about the Olympics is one event, one event that I love that if I could only watch one, it would be this one, and that is the final of the 100-meter dash, 100-meter run, whatever you want to call it. Love watching that event because for the matter of about 10 seconds, or if you're Usain Bolt, it's 9.58, but for like 10 seconds, you dial in and you watch this one event take place. Like it's, when, when there were actually people in the stands, it is super quiet. The, the guy says his thing, and then you hear the gun go off, and then the crowd just roars for this 10 seconds. It's amazing to watch. I le legitimately enjoy watching it so much. But last week, we found ourselves tuned in watching something on the complete far end of the spectrum. And that is, or was, the Olympic marathon. Like, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I will never run 26 miles in my life. I prefer not to even drive 26 miles, much less while watching on TV. But we started it at about mile four, and we began watching, and I thought the entire time, at any point, we're going to turn it off and go do something, like we're going to go do something. It got to like mile 10. We're still watching. 
Got to mile 15, and I'm like, you know what? Like, we're committed to this. We're going to watch. It got to mile 18, and this one guy, he fell out. Like, he started cramping up, and I was like, man, why you got to be so weak? Meanwhile, I'm eating potato chips on the couch, you know? Like, I'm, I'm just yelling at him, like, you got to make it. And he got to mile 18. He fell out. The guy that ended up winning was so far ahead of other people that when he actually won, like, he just started talking normal, was not breathing hard. As everybody else came in and was, like, collapsing, he was just... He, he was just like, hey, you guys are going to be okay. Like, you're going to make it. Meanwhile, he just won gold. But we watched it, and honestly, of all the things that I thought I would never enjoy, loved watching a marathon. It, about two hours worth of TV, but it was fun. And it was fun because at times you, you saw people and they were coasting and you could tell they got into this rhythm and then they would kind of battle for position. And then at other times it was very, very grueling. And it, you could, it was obvious that it's like, this is, this is difficult, as, as of course it's going to be. It was grueling, and then at times, honestly, it was, there was excitement. All of that within this race. Now, I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but when it comes to a marriage, it is exactly like a marathon. It's not like the 100-meter dash that I enjoy watching, which is only intended to last a short distance in a short time, but instead your marriage is just like that marathon. At times it's grueling. At times it's exciting. At times you, you may just coast, but that's exactly what, if you are married, that's exactly what your marriage is like. The problem is that in our culture, we view marriage as something that can be discarded at any time because you no longer like it or because it doesn't fit your desires. We treat it like the 100-meter dash. You know what? It's over. I'm done. We can move on. I know in this room, there are people whose marriages are struggling. You're sitting in here, and that immediately hit you right then because you know your marriage is not what you wished it was or, or what it could be. For various reasons, it's difficult right now. There's those of you in this room, and you're looking to get married soon. You have the opportunity to get married soon, and you're excited about that. And people sitting in this room, your marriage is great. It's phenomenal. And there are those of you in the room who are single, and you hope to at one day get married. I want to tell you something this morning. That marriage is going to be grueling, exciting. You're going to have to coast at times, and at times you're going to have to go the extra mile. But what I'm going to tell you this morning from God's Word, that is, if you want your marriage to last, to be great, to be fruitful, and to be godly, you need to listen to this. If that's what you desire, then you need to listen to these next few minutes. There are going to be two commands, one directed at wives and one directed at husbands. Each of you will get your own time, but... In God's word, he devoted three verses to wives and nine to husbands because often we're more hard-headed and we need somebody to tell us a little bit longer. But that's what happens here. If you want a marathon marriage that lasts through the ages, the Bible gives two things that you must do. So it doesn't matter what stage in life you are in right now. If marriage is something that's on your radar, it's something that you're in, or it's something that, that is, could potentially happen, you need to listen. Inevitably, when we read our Bibles, we're going to find things that we don't like or that we disagree with or that rub us the wrong way. And verse 21 in Ephesians 5 says, Paul says this, 
In verse 20, he says, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In this passage, husbands and wives submit to one another just in different ways because as Christians, it is the role of a Christian to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. So what do we see in the first command? Here's the first command this morning. Wife, submit to your husband. Now, I know the idea of submission is not natural to us. It's honestly not something we like. Not to mention this phrase and the dominant nature of some men have led to ungodly treatment of women. That's what has happened here. However, we must take God's word for what it is, and that is truth wrapped in God's goodness given to us in love for our spiritual well-being. So before we go on to what submission actually looks like from a biblical standpoint, let's see what it isn't. Submission isn't inferiority. The idea that women are less important, less valuable, or have less dignity than men, that isn't submission at all. Submission isn't the dominance of the man. The wife just does whatever he says. Submission also isn't unconditional obedience or just simply obedience that the man says it, the woman has to do it. That's not submission. Submission also isn't the independent decision-making on a part of the man. He makes the decision, wife, you have to sit back and do whatever he says. That's not, that's not submission. Submission also isn't that women shouldn't have positions of high authority. None of those equate to submission from a biblical standpoint, but in the first century when Paul is writing, it did. The world that Paul is writing into, the world of Ephesus, saw women as property to be taken, had, or done away with, and Paul is clearly saying that women, you have so much value, though you do not, in this time period, you have so much value that he says something that was actually countercultural in that time. He says, wife, submit to your own husband. Because see, what happened in that culture is women simply submitted to men. But Paul isn't saying, women, you submit to men. He's saying, wife, submit to your husband. You don't have to submit to anyone else. That's so countercultural. So what is it that submission actually is? Andreas Kostenberger, a professor at Southeastern Seminary and a commentator, said submission is to follow your husband's loving leadership. To follow your husband's loving leadership. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself is the Savior. Wife, as your husband looks to lead you spiritually, and I'll say if he doesn't, then give him some grace and also kind of prod him a little bit with the pen that you're taking notes with. If he doesn't, when your husband leads you spiritually, you follow willfully and confidently. You have as much say in any matter as he does, but God has called him to lead. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. God has called you to follow his leadership. Now, I'll say this. Our sexist and me-driven culture will tell you that what I'm saying goes against your validation as a human being, but I'm not guided by culture. I'm guided by what God's word, which has lasted through the ages, has to say to us. I'll give you an example of, of when I heard this take place years ago. Um, I, I did a study with our life group called The Meaning of Marriage, and I read Tim Keller's book called The Meaning of Marriage. And um, Keller said that early on, 
in he and Kathy Keller's marriage that uh, he realized God was calling him to plant a church in New York City. Now, I would say this, that, that you have to feel that God is calling you to want to go plant a church in New York City, right? So he felt that God was calling him to plant a church in New York City, and he took this to Kathy, his wife, and he was like, I really feel that God is calling us to do this. And she said, I don't want to go. And he was like, honey, I don't think you realize, but like I'm listening to God here. You know, he didn't treat her like that. No, he, he said, honey, like, I feel like God is calling us to go to New York City. And she said, I don't want to, so... They had to make a decision, and to make a decision or not make a decision was to actually make one. So he eventually said, you know what, like, we're not going to go. Like, I, I don't want to go if you do not want to go, so we won't go. To which Kathy then responded, you're not going to do that to me. You're allowing me to make the decision that only you can make. So what ends up happening in their disagreement, he was wanting to take care of her, but in their disagreement, she said, I will go. I'm just telling you I don't want to, but I will go if you feel that that is right. So it was on him to make the decision for their family. Well, they go and they plant a church in New York City. Honestly, the amount of times that something to that magnitude is going to happen in your life where, where the husband has one idea, the wife has the other idea, and it's, it's going to be to the magnitude of moving to New York City to plant a church, the times that's going to happen are honestly probably so slim. Chances are it's going to be, I want to eat here, I want to eat here, one of us is going to make a decision. However, however, what happens here is a picture of following the husband's loving leadership. Wife, when you show your submission and followership to Jesus, you do so by, by following your husband. It doesn't mean that your husband is Jesus, far from it, but you show your devotion to God and his word by how you handle this. Now, I want to say something here, because men traditionally in a message on marriage or in a family series, honestly, almost always get a bad rap. They get called out really, really strongly, and I'll probably do that in a few minutes, but I want to take a second and talk to wives in the room, especially those wives that are extremely strong-willed and have a, a dominant personality. If you say, I, I can get behind most everything in the Bible, but the idea of submission is just something that isn't for me, I want to clearly say you do not get to choose what part of God's word you like and don't like. God said it. We're going to find out the husband's role in your life in just a moment, and we already saw what submission is not. God said it. You don't get to choose. But secondly, I want to say this to every husband in the room. You should never, ever, ever quote this verse to your wife. Ever. With, 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 with any sense of, I, I, like, I know growing up, honestly, you, you, you probably said it or have said it in like a funny way, and it's true, like, like you've probably done that, but with any sense of seriousness, that should never be said. If you do, then you're, we'll find out in a second, not loving like Christ, but Jesus doesn't come, to, come at us with this sense of you do what I say or else mentality. If he did that, then we would all be in hell. Jesus doesn't approach us that way. So we don't approach our wives that way, so you should never, ever, ever do that. Submitting is to follow your husband's loving leadership, and this is a clear picture of what a godly, biblical marriage is to look like. Notice I didn't say a traditional marriage. 
You see, if you grew up in the South, you understand typically that we equate a traditional marriage with a godly marriage. So traditional marriage meaning the wife does all the cooking and cleaning and the laundry, the husband does all the outside work and earns the income and brings it home. I'm not saying that that's wrong. If that works for you, then that is totally fine. But we don't see any roles for men and women in how they are to function in their family right here outside of submission and love. The wife can make more money, have more education, and from a career standpoint, be completely more successful than the husband. But the principle of Ephesians 5 still applies. Wives, submit. Husbands, what are you to do? And this is where we get to the the nine verses that's on us. Husband, love your wife unconditionally. Like Jesus loves you. Unconditionally. The word for love is very explicit and clear. It's the same word used in all throughout scripture, but, but in John 3.16 when we see for God so loved the world. In the language of the New Testament, you have multiple words for love, and there's one word that means unconditional, no strings attached. That's the love that's used here. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Unconditional love is not I love you if or I love you because. It's simply I love you. Maybe we could even say anyway. I love you. That's unconditional love. In saying husband, love your wife, and Paul is giving a command. This is a verb. This isn't a suggestion. He says, husband, love your wife. He introduces another revolutionary concept in the first century. You see, a wife had every obligation to her husband. Every obligation. But the husband had zero obligations to his wife. None. She was obligated to him. He was not obligated to her. And this command to love your wife means that Paul is laying out this new radical idea saying, husband, you should love your wife so much and look out for her that anything and everything you will sacrifice for her. Husband, you have a God-ordained obligation to love your wife unconditionally. It's not from me. It's not from whoever did your wedding. It is from God who created you and actually knows what's best for you. The Bible tells you, husband, love your wife as Christ loves you. So how in the world did Christ love you? He didn't didn't simply just want to tell you. He was actually willing to show you. Christ wasn't just willing to die for the church, but he did die for the church. It wasn't just something he considered. It's something that he actually did. It says that he gave himself up, which is sacrificial, meaning he gave up his own agenda for someone else. Jesus gave up his own agenda. He did so for you and me to make us holy and beautiful and blameless. He died to cleanse you and me from our sin. He sacrificed himself to those who actually would hate him. Look at what Philippians 2, 3 through 8 actually say about what we do because of what Jesus did. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Think about that for a second before I go on. What if in our marriages and much less in our culture we, we took that principle and actually applied it, counting somebody else as more significant than me? 
Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he did not use his godness for his own advantage. Oh, I can create anything because I created the world. Let me create something that I want. Or, hey, you know what? I, I want to do this just simply because I can, so I'm going to do it. Jesus did not do that. He laid aside the power with which he had, and said he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Husband, for you to love your wife as Christ loves you means to sacrifice all of your own interest for the welfare of your wife. All of your own interest. It's on you to commit to the total and spiritual well-being of your wife. It's on you. And this doesn't just happen. It takes initiative to love your wife sacrificially. It's not just going to exist. And I know that it can be the tendency of some guys to work and provide and then simply hope the best for his family. But spiritual leadership takes, spiritual leadership and godly leadership takes effort and work but men, that's what God has called you and me to do, and that's what will make your marriage a successful marathon marriage, is if you take the initiative to love and lead. Your role as a leader is to love your wife so fiercely that in all aspects of life, you think of her first. It's not career, then my wife. It's not kids, then my wife. It's not career, kids, then my wife. It is her First, it's not me, it's, it's, it's her. As a matter of fact, Paul says that just as you love your own body and take care of your own body and you nourish and cherish your own body, that's how you're, you're to love your wife. Just like you would love your own physical self. And guess what? If we look at Genesis chapter 2, we see that, that she is actually a part of you and you're now a part of her. What does Genesis 2 that Paul quotes here say? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become how much? How much? One flesh. By the way, side note, the word hold fast there literally means like glue. Husband, it's not I, I will leave my father and mother and go to my wife, but then kind of like, still do whatever my, my parents are telling me. No, you're holding fast to her and her alone. Your wife is yours and you are now hers. Treat her that way. No one in their right mind goes out of their way, Paul says, to destroy your own body. Instead, you actually do what you can to make it better. That's what you're called to do. To cherish here and to nourish means to care for something in such a way to bring out the best. So I'm going to ask husbands this question. What are you doing to make your marriage better? What are you doing to make your marriage better? This, this is going to go to both husbands and wives. If your marriage is a misery, if your marriage is a misery, look at yourself first. Don't immediately, like, immediately like Adam did in the garden, say, hey, it's her fault, and point the finger, and pass the blame. Look at your own life. What are you doing that could actually make your marriage better? Marriage was never 
and has never been intended to be, if you do your part, I'll do mine. That's conditional love. God calls husbands to love unconditionally. And husband, when you do that, in verse 21, it says you're submitting to one another. You're submitting to your wife by loving her unconditionally. When Jesus sacrificed for the church, he had a long view in mind of what we would look like one day when we enter heaven in all of his glory and we will be perfect. And it's no coincidence, I don't think, that Paul would use this long view of heaven when he talks about marriage because it's the role of the husband to love the wife so much that the marriage lasts and endures. And this takes the phrase that is often quoted in weddings, till death do us part, and it elevates it greatly. Because it's not just something that you simply say in your marriage vows, but something that God wants and desires for every single marriage. I tell this to premarital couples all the time. Right now, I've I've got two couples. I'll be doing their weddings in a, a few weeks, and I tell them this. I say, you take this word, and that word being divorce, and you take that word and you, you put it in a box and you lock it up and you put a weight on it and you throw that thing in the bottom of the ocean. Because I want to say this, I, I know there are biblical grounds and scenarios for divorce and we've had people in our church who go through them and, and I've walked with some of those people and it is not something that is fun. But if your marriage is struggling this morning, you take that word and you throw it out. Don't even consider it. God has never intended for that to be the case. If you're walked in here and you're like, you know what? Like, it's struggling because she da-da-da-da-da or it's struggling because he da-da-da-da-da. No, 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 no. Take that word and throw it out. If you need us, I'll talk about that at the end. If you need us, you call us, but throw that word out. Jesus, just as he never gives up on you, you never should give up on your marriage. When Jesus saves us, he isn't through. It's only the beginning from that point that he begins to clean us and and make us into who he wants us to be. And husband, that's what you're called to do for your wife. Shepherd her to be more like Jesus, just as you are growing to be more like him. And this isn't passive. It's extremely intentional and necessary for you to have a healthy and vibrant marriage. So maybe you're sitting here and you're like, Adrian, what something I can do? I want to ask you this question. It's a question that, that I think is important for you as a husband. Wife, you can, you can ask this to your husband, but I'm going to ask this directly to husbands. Is your wife more like Christ because she's married to you? Because according to Ephesians 5, she should be. doesn't mean that she's perfect because she's not going to be. It doesn't mean that you can lead her to that because you're not. But is your wife more like Christ because she's married to you? And you may be thinking, well, what, how can I, what can I do to, to even begin to remotely get there? I'll give you a few points of application that you can do on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. The first one is this, talk about the word with her. All right, now, I know there are people in this room, and I've talked to husbands and wives, and they, they can do their devotions together. Like, they wake up in the morning and like the glory of God is around their home and they're listening to Chris Tomlin and Hillsong and they can sit down and they do two hours worth of just amazing devotion. I really don't think that's the case, but I, but I, I know that there are people who can wake up and you do your devotions together and it is a beautiful thing. If you can do that, then that is amazing. But I'm going to be straight up transparent. Whitney and I can't. 
We can't, and here's why. We tried that one, maybe two times. And here's what inevitably happens. We read a passage or we read a part of a book and I just begin to ask questions and to teach all these things that I know. And she stopped me and said, Adrian, I didn't sign up for a course, all right? And I realized right then, you know what? Like that's, I'm a teacher at heart. That's what I do. Like I wanna say, this is what this means and this is da, 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 and it doesn't work. But here's what we do. We, maybe sometimes it's every day, we'll go times where it's a few days in between, but I just simply ask her, hey, what, you're on a reading plan right now, she's on a reading plan, hey, what are you reading, what, what are you learning, let's talk about that. And I've learned in a little bit of maturity to not just say, let me tell you what that means real fast, no, I don't do that, I just say, what are you reading, what, do you, what are you learning, and she'll do the same for me, just talk about the word with your wife. Another one is talk to and know how your wife is doing. That seems very simple. But typically the simple things that we struggle to do, I simply mean, hey, how are you doing? Not what did you do today? How are you doing? What are some things, what are the things you're thinking about? What's going on in your mind? What, what are some fears that you have right now? What are some aspirations, some, some dreams, hopes, fears? What, what is going on? Talk to and know how your wife is doing. Another one is pray for and with your wife. Pray for and with your wife. I, I think it's simple to pray for your spouse. It's another to, to, to decide, you know what, we're going to be intentional about praying together. That's something that, I'll be honest, I struggled with early, early on is, is this idea of praying with her. Don't know why. Praying for was simple, but the idea of saying we're going to set aside time and pray together is something that we've gotten tremendously better at, but do that. Pray for and with your wife. Compliment her often. Compliment her. I would say, or wives, compliment your husbands. Like one of the best things you could do is when you come home and you see that the grass has been mowed, you just simply say, honey, the grass looks great. And for some reason, dudes will be on cloud nine. I don't understand that, but we do. We, we want to be complimented for something we've accomplished. But here's the thing. Compliment one another often. Don't let there be loads of time go in between whenever you're talking to one another about something good about one another. Here's a couple more. Don't try to win. Don't try to win. Like you're in a discussion, a debate, an argument. Like there's, there's no point in, in winning. Like, like what are you winning? Like the right to say, I won? <laughs> like don't, don't try to win. Stop doing that. And the last one is this. Schedule time, if you have kids, away from your kids. To focus on y'all. Because inevitably, here's what's going to happen. Kids need a lot, especially if they're younger, they need a bunch. And some of you are like, I got older kids and they still need just as much. But kids need. So because they're needy and because they need you, you need to schedule time away from them to where it's just you and your spouse. There are probably 50 other things that you could share all across the room, as many of you have have been married for years and some of you have been married for longer than I've been alive. You could say, here's some other things that you can do to make your marriage a marathon marriage, but I want to give you one last one that is vitally important. Vitally important, it's this. We see something in one of the last verses that Paul gives that's very important, no matter how good your marriage is. I don't care if your marriage is the best in the world. Like literally, you have the best marriage ever known to humanity. It was never meant to be the ultimate thing. Paul says this in verse 32, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it, talking about marriage, refers to Christ and the church. 
You see, marriage is only meant to be a picture of something greater. So what is that something greater? It's the gospel of Jesus. Let me tell you how. In marriage, two people give sacrificially of themselves to the other. And in the gospel, Jesus gave himself sacrificially to all of humanity. In marriage, your focus isn't on you, but rather completely on the other person. And in the gospel, Jesus laid aside the glory of heaven to place his focus on you. In marriage, you work through one another's flaws so that it will last. In the gospel, Jesus became every one of your flaws so that you could have eternity. For some of you, parts of your marriage is, has struggled and is struggling because you've got, it, you've got this ultimate relationship out of order. You've placed yourself at the center or your spouse at the center, and because of that, neither one of you were ever meant to handle the weight of that, and you have forgotten that there was one who bore every single sin on himself and every single sin of your spouse on himself. And when you both submit to his rightly royal kingship, your marriage will become what it was supposed to be, which is a clear picture of God's goodness in the gospel. Not only does a gospel-centered marriage paint a picture of God's goodness and love like it's supposed to, the outcome of a gospel-centered marriage are two joy-filled, happy people pressing through life in a marathon marriage. That's what God has called you as a married couple to do, is to understand that your marriage was never meant to be everything. It was only meant to be a picture of what Jesus has done for you. So what are you to do leaving from this place as we go in a moment, I, I, I'm giving you a few things that you take with you. The first one is this. If your marriage is struggling, call us. Call the church. There is zero shame in that. Zero. Wife, if, if you are thinking that y'all need counseling and husband, you say, no, we don't, then husband, I'm going to encourage you, swallow your pride and say, you know what, if, if she thinks we need to work on something and I'm willing to not listen, maybe we do. Or it could be vice versa. But if, if your marriage is struggling and you need help, like, call us. Do that. Other, something else you can do is apologize often and then forgive even more. Like, apologize often. I don't know why, well, I do know why, because we're sinful humanity who are selfish, but it's difficult to apologize. Like, it's hard to look at somebody and say, I'm sorry, not I'm sorry because you feel that way. That's not an apology. I'm sorry because I did that. I'm sorry. And then when somebody does, don't sit and say, yeah, you should be. No, you forgive. Apologize often. And forgive even more. And the last thing that you can do is pursue amazing in terms of your marriage. Don't settle for just making it. Like maybe you settle for just making it in school. Like, you know what? I know that like a 3.5 GPA is as good as like a 4.0. And to that, I commend you. Like, that's all right. But in your marriage, don't. Don't settle for, you know what? We're, we're just getting by. Who wants to just get by for the rest of your life? What about amazing? What if, what if you're like, you know what, we, I want to pursue the best marriage known to man. Well, you know what, this, this is one way that you can do it. And our prayer is that your marriage will be wonderful and it will be a long-lasting marathon marriage. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you do love us enough to...
to give yourself, give your son so that we could have hope, so that we could have forgiveness, and Lord, so that we would have the opportunity to experience your love and goodness. Lord, I pray right now for those in the room who are married and whose marriages are great. I pray that they would take these principles from your word and they would apply them to see their marriage only get better. And God, I pray for the ones in the room whose marriages are are struggling on the rocks, maybe at the brink of of ending, that you you would use some part of this message which comes from your word, Lord, and you would, you would take and begin to heal and mend and, and make that marriage what you want it to be. Pray for those who are preparing to get married, Lord, that they would prepare knowing that it's going to be their tendency to want to be me-centered. But God, I pray that you would take right now and remove as much of that as, as you can in their life at this moment. Lord, I pray that we would be a church, a region of people whose families are strong, whose marriages are amazing. Oh, Lord, how that will be a testament to your love for us. In Jesus' name.